Well, good morning again. As I said before, I'm Doug Moss. I'm the groups and care pastor here at St. John, and, uh, and we're kicking off this new series, Hollow, uh, as you just saw up on the screen. We're going to be looking through Galatians uh, at all the things um, that uh, we reach out to try to fulfill ourselves with, but ultimately end us end up leaving us hollow. Now, I don't know about you, but my life has been pretty busy this summer. Uh, a, a time of year that's supposed to be a little more slow-paced, a little more relaxed, uh, has not been that way for me, and I know I've just been spending my days trying to keep up with the pace of life recently. Uh, pretty much from the moment my alarm clock goes off, I'm trying to juggle all of the, the current, present day, just things that need to be done and accomplished, all those little urgencies that, uh, that just keep peppering away at you. And, and in the midst of that, I try to carve time for some future planning. You know, my wife and I were trying to you know, budget and think about future vacations and, and try to actually have some, some future thinking in the midst of all of the stuff that's piling on in our present days. Uh, and just honestly, between it all, I just don't even have a moment to really think or process beyond that. I'm just trying to keep up with the present, cast a little bit of sight towards the future, uh, and I don't have time for much else. Um, except for one time during my day. There's one time where it does go a little differently, and, and that, unfortunately, is bedtime. Every single night. It seems like that's the one time that my brain, out of self-defense or just out of stress and weariness, that's the time when it finds I've let my defenses down, my guard down, I'm worn out after a long day. That's when it decides to pepper me with every embarrassing action, every mistake, every regret, uh, everything that I've just kind of tried to shove down for the sake of getting on with my day, that's, that's when it comes back up. And, and I assume from the laughter that you guys can at least somewhat relate, that, that every one of us has had that experience of lying awake at night uh, and just remembering and just overhauling again and again the, this past decision, whether it's that couch that we really shouldn't have bought because it's already falling apart nine months later. Or there are some people, and I'm not going to say who it is, but there are some of us who lay awake at night and still think about that time 15 years ago that they got kicked out of the Renaissance Festival for being a little too into it. I won't say who that was. But we've all got those things. And if we don't deal with them normally, then I think one of the reasons we have this experience is our brain's going to force us to deal with them at night, which is the worst time possible. And, and I think that that comes up for a few reasons, because I think the ways that we tend to handle our past struggles, mistake, mistakes, regrets, uh, embarrassments, I think, I think we tend to handle them in a few ways that maybe get them out of the way for just getting through today, but they don't actually make peace or resolve those past situations. And there are a few that, that as I was thinking about this, uh, that, that came to mind is these are ways that we attempt to deal with our past struggles to varying degrees of success. And, and the first one is the simplest. We just try to pretend that our past struggles didn't happen. Uh, we try to act like we are a fully formed individual who just came with no embarrassing past at all. Uh, I know for me that played out. I went um, to an out-of-state college when I went to college, and while I picked the college because it had uh, a program that was in my career that I wanted to be in, uh, because it had a soccer team that I could play on, because the faculty were, were kind and invested in their students, probably the number one reason I was excited to go to college was because there was nobody at college that knew what I was like in seventh grade. Clean slate. 
I could just show up as this very cool, or at least thought he was cool, 18-year-old who had no history of embarrassing things in his past, because as far as anyone at college knew, I was starting fresh. I see that play out in other people's lives, uh, especially when they've got uh, hard family situations or dysfunctional family relationships, uh, and, and people who move away because that's the only way they can get peace or start over from uh, something in their past or in their family that's, that's tying them down. We, we, we try to pretend that it didn't happen. We try to pretend that this embarrassing thing or, that, or this toxic thing, it, it wasn't there, that we're just a new person starting over fresh, but the pretending eventually falls short. Another way I've seen how we try to deal with our past struggles is by whitewashing them. You know, we don't pretend it didn't happen. We admit it, but we admit it in such a way that we're able to put, uh, you know, just a nice veneer on it, a little sugar coating on our past uh, mistakes. And the way I see that play out so often uh, is during the dreaded interview process. Now, if you've had the opportunity to look for work any time in the last 20 years, you know that in any job interview, there is one question that will come up. Doesn't matter what the job is, what the career field is, at some point in that interview, they will ask you, what? What's your greatest weakness? Or they might phrase it a little differently. They might say, oh, you know, what's a mistake you've made in the past? You know, what's a wrong thing that you've done? But at some point in the interview, they're going to ask you this question that forces you to delve into the, the weaker parts of your character, the embarrassing parts of your history, mistakes that you've made. Now, my favorite answer to that question is one that I, I saw in Dilbert, where he's asked the weaknesses question. His answer is, sometimes I work so fast that I become invisible. In fact, if I'm looking blurry right now, it's because I'm multitasking. But we've all been there, right? Like we've had the interview question and, and we've said, oh, you know, sometimes I just get so invested in the company that I just work nights and weekends, you know, and it's a weakness of mine, right? We, we've given that, that, that fake answer. Or even if we're willing to be sincere uh, and share a real weakness, we still find a way to sugarcoat it a little bit. Now, something you might not know about the profession I'm in, there are a few oddities and quirks about working in the church uh, that you may or may not know. One of the weird ones is, as far as I know, being in church work is the only career field where you are expected to bring your wife with you on your job interviews. Picture that. Picture being in that room where people are grilling you and the whole time you've got the one person who knows you the best in the world giving you the side eye. In fact, that happened even as I was interviewing here at St. John this spring. Uh, my wife was in the interview with me, and, uh, you know, and they asked kind of, you know, what's your life story? You know, kind of tell us some of your ups and downs. And so I did, and, and then we got out to the car, and the first thing my wife said to me was, well, that was a little different. <laughs> Version of the story. Because I lived through those, and that, that's not how it was when, when we were going through it. And I try to say, oh, you know, I'm just, I'm trying to be positive. I'm trying to be upbeat. And, and, and she called me out in that moment and, and said, there's a difference between being positive and upbeat and being insincere about the struggles in your past. You know, to try and admit them with a hand wave and find a way to make them not sound so bad because you're trying to be positive, that's, that's not honestly dealing with your past or with your weaknesses. A third way that I see us unfortunately deal with our struggles is by simply giving up and letting them silence us. 
taking the things in our past and saying that this black mark, this stain, it disqualifies me from speaking to any sort of topic about this moving forward. That my future course is actually now dictated um, by this past thing that, that, that has conquered me. I see it play out in families where parents don't feel like they can have the important and necessary conversations with their kids about sex, drugs, whatever the thing might be, because they know that if they brought it up, they might be labeled a hypocrite. They might have to say that dreaded parental expression where you say, well, do what I say, not what I do. And we let past mistakes be something that haunts us and actually uh, disempowers us from doing the very thing God has called us to do in raising our children. Or think about it in the public sphere. Uh, As every politician or celebrity knows, when you live under a permanent microscope, anything that you have ever said or done that's embarrassing or that's a gaffe will be held against you forever. Politicians who have spent decades in public service are known for one bad vote or known for one unfortunate statement while the microphone was on, or they've let one thing in their history uh, that, that surfaces up and ends up ultimately discrediting everything they're trying to do in the public service. See, we let, we let it silence us. And I think one of the reasons I lose sleep at night, uh, and potentially you too, is because when we handle our struggles in this way, we're not actually dealing with them. We're trying to amputate them or sever them Uh, from who we are today. We we try to be human beings without a history because the negative things in that history are embarrassing or shameful or broken. But when we try to be humans without history, what we end up being is simply hollow. A veneer that looks presentable, and this is who I am right now today, uh, but it's completely discounted and left behind and tried, like I said, to amputate the stuff in our past that we're afraid might make us look bad. And when we handle it that way, I think our brains are one of the the allies in our corner that won't let us forget it. The reason we have sleepless nights is because this cannot last forever. The hollowness ultimately will come up one way or another. But I don't think this has to be the way we handle our past. I don't think this has to be the way that we look at our struggles and and find a way to sweep them under the rug or forget about them or not let them be a part of our life. And so, in fact, I think as we get into Galatians this morning, we're going to see a different way. And so, if you've got your Bibles or you've got a Bible app on your phone, I invite you to pull it out and follow along. Uh, If you're here, uh, the Pew Bibles, it's page 1167. But again, we're going to Galatians. And just a little background, um, Paul was a church planter. He planted a church in Galatia, uh, and there were some issues in the church that he heard about while he was far away, and so he wrote them this letter. And for the next six weeks, we're going to be working through this letter chapter by chapter, Uh, but today we're going to start with uh, the first uh, round of things that Paul has to say to his church. So, chapter 1, starting in verse 11. Paul says uh, to these Christians that, again, he knows personally and he helped them start a church, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. See, Paul had a job to do. 
God spoke to him directly and said, I need you to proclaim my good news to the world. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you saw Pastor Dion talk about that uh, story in Acts chapter 9. If you weren't here, I encourage you to go to our website and look it up in the archives. It's a really powerful and good story. Uh, And you'll hear a little bit more about exactly how that happened, how Jesus Christ called Paul uh, to be his ambassador and representative and church planner. But the main thing to know for this morning is Paul had a purpose given to him by God. And that's what prompted the letter that he was writing to these people in Galatia. All right, so we move on. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Now, this is the story you heard two weeks ago. Uh, This is what Paul was doing. And I want you to notice here what Paul is not doing in this verse. Paul is not pretending that this embarrassing portion of his past never happened. Paul is not whitewashing it uh, and just kind of hand-waving away and saying, oh yeah, I I had a dark time, a a rough season, you know, a a bit of a troublesome patch. Uh, He's not saying that. He he flat out calls it out. He says, I, how intensely I persecuted the church of God. I tried to destroy it. He's not trying to pretend it didn't happen, and he's certainly not letting it silence him when he has an important thing that he needs to say to this church in this moment. We'll continue. For in fact, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, uh, and if you don't know this name, this is the other name for Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest friends and apostles. And so I went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, and I stayed with him 15 days, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. And I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Now, this might sound or seem a little defensive as you kind of read through it. You know, why is Paul you know, saying all these things about what he didn't do and who he didn't talk to? Uh, and the point is this, that someone with Paul's past could be looked at somewhat questionably as someone who's trying to proclaim the gospel of Christ. And it would be very easy for someone in Paul's position not to appeal to their own purpose, identity, and authority given to them from God, but to instead appeal to other people who had unblemished records. You see, there were these apostles that had actually been friends with Jesus. They'd walked with Jesus. They'd done years of ministry with Jesus, and Paul wasn't one of those. Uh, he never knew Jesus while Jesus was walking the earth. And so it was very easy for people to try to discredit him or say that he was um, uniquely disqualified for doing what he was doing. And if he was doing it, it was only because he'd gotten some credibility from the other apostles. And Paul is pushing back against that idea very strongly in the letter. He's trying to say, this is not uh, about something that someone else gave me. This is not something that I don't get to speak to because of my past. This is something I got from God and God directly. And here's the point. Here's the amazing reason why this is so important for Paul to make this point. Because then, after not getting this from other people, then he went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard this report. The man who formerly persecuted us 
is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. So how did Paul get there? How did he make this transition from someone who persecuted Christ, someone who had the most tainted, disqualifying past ever, to now being someone where they're praising God because of him? Well, believe it or not, I think it comes down to one word. But before I tell you what that word is, I need to just safeguard a second and unpack it because I know that when you hear this word, it's going to sound like a churchy word. It's going to sound like a concept that belongs in the last century. Sounds like something that's archaic uh, and just religious and, and not anything that matters today. But I tell you, that word is the reason that someone like Paul was able to move from an embarrassing, shame-filled past to being someone that people praised God because of him. And that word is this, confession. Confession. Now again, you hear that word, and I know for many of you, because it's the same for me, you, it immediately conjures up images of wooden booths in cathedrals uh, and a sliding screen and a bunch of Hail Marys, or depending on what church tradition you might have grown up in, it, it conjures up memories of having to every week say, I, a poor, miserable sinner, uh, and it was just this religious ritual that you were raised doing, and that's what confession uh, triggers in you or what it, what it seems, the connotation that it has. But I would like to help you understand confession more truly than that. You see, confession was this gift that Jesus Christ gave us 2,000 years ago. This gift that has just as much supernatural power today as it ever has. A gift that is as necessary for God's followers today as it's ever been. You see, confession is when you take that past struggle And you don't pretend it didn't happen. You don't try to sugarcoat it. You don't let it disqualify or silence you. But instead, you take that thing, that mistake, that weakness, that shame, and you give it to God. Again, that sounds like just church stuff, but but this is what I'm talking about. It's saying that you can't just repress it in yourself. You can't just use these earthly, fleshly methods that just say, I'm just going to shove it down, pretend it's not there, and hope that it won't ever rear its ugly head again. We see what happens when people try to do that. You've felt what happens when you try to do that, but in fact, we've been given access to a miracle from God, where God has said, if you're willing If you're able to take this thing and not just shove it down, not just pretend it didn't happen, but release it to me, then God says he can do something about that. You see, when Jesus Christ went to the cross 2,000 years ago, it wasn't just some divine miracle so that God could show how amazing and powerful and awesome he was, that he could conquer death. It's because when Jesus went to the cross, he took with him every single shame and sin that humanity had to offer. And when we are willing and vulnerable enough to confess our sins to God, what we're actually doing is participating in that miracle from 2,000 years ago. We're actually saying, hey, Jesus, as long as you're nailing the sins of humanity to the cross, would you take this one too? This thing that I can't forget or let myself get over, could you just have it for a while? And if we release it to him, he takes it. 
puts it away from us, and then comes back to us and says, it's not you anymore. That's not a part of your past that has to disqualify, name, or identify you anymore. What identifies you now as someone who has confessed and released that weakness, that shame, that mistake, is now you get to be a renewed, washed clean child of God. See, what we didn't see in the story today, because Paul was summarizing, but he shares it in some of his other letters, is that between the moment when he was persecuting and destroying the church and when he was planting churches and doing amazing things for the gospel, between that time was 12 years. And what Paul was doing in those 12 years was approaching the throne of God with fear and trembling and saying to God in all vulnerability and honesty, I am the worst of sinners. I'm a murderer. I have a past that I cannot reconcile with who I'm called to be. See, God had said to him, Paul, I want you to preach my good news to the Gentiles. And Paul is saying, but this is who I was. And in that moment of vulnerability and honesty, in that moment of confession, God says to Paul, it's not who you are anymore. That's the miracle that can happen with confession. You see, Paul realized a truth, and he shared it actually at the beginning of this letter. I skipped it because I wanted to give you the context and the background, but I want to go back now and show you how Paul started this passage that we read to the Galatians. See, this is what Paul said in verse 10. He said, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see, when we look just down here in the, in the earthly realm and what people say and think about us, then yeah, in their eyes, we are defined by who we've been and what we've done. But if we're willing to actually shift our eyes higher, to say, I'm not going to ask or care what this person thinks about me, but only what God thinks about me, then you have a very clear answer that I can promise you today. The answer is this. When God looks at you, he says, my son, Jesus Christ, loved you enough to die for you. And so I approve of you right now. I don't hold your past sins against you. I don't hold your mistakes and shames against you. I look at you washed clean through the forgiveness of my son, and I say that you are approved of. You are worthy. You're loved and valuable. See, that's the secret that Paul figured out moving from his past to his future. That through confession, we gain right standing with God. And once we have that, human opinions can fall by the wayside. You see, once we do confession with God, see, things happen to those past struggles that we used to have to whitewash, ignore, or give into. See, what happens instead is we gain credibility from our past struggles. See, if we take something and we've confessed it and we've received forgiveness and approval of God because of it, now we can use it to verify where we've been. We can use it to give credibility to what we're trying to say now. I don't know how many of you remember this, but for about 10 years, Verizon had a commercial that they ran 
constantly for a decade, where there was this kind of slightly nerdy guy in glasses on his cell phone saying the catchphrase, can you hear me now? Right? That's how long running it was. We all remember that. Do you guys know what that guy is advertising today? Sprint. And you know why? Because Sprint looked at him and they didn't say, oh, we can't use that guy. He's been touting our competition for 10 years. Like his past, it taints him. No, they said, boy, if that guy says that Sprint's better, it's actually going to leverage the 10 years he spent touting for Verizon and actually make his new message for Sprint better. His past embarrassing thing that he used to be uh, an advertising person for a different company actually makes his current uh, representation even more persuasive to the masses. At least Sprint thinks so. That's why they're paying him the big bucks. See, if we are willing to let our struggles be redeemed by God, they don't have to be something that makes us hollow and leaves us not having anything worthwhile to to say. In fact, it can make us even more credible. Not only that, if we take our struggles and we give them to God, they give us an empathy that makes us far more powerful and able to be of good in the world than before. See, as I pointed out, Paul had a purpose from God given to him in this amazing moment on a a road. Each and every one of you here has a purpose from God. The Bible says in Ephesians that you are God's finest craftsmanship. And that each and every one of us, he knew in advance that he was creating us for a purpose that he decided before the dawn of time. That means that there is something out there that God said you and only you can do. There's a person out there that you and only you can love. There's a mission that you and only you can accomplish. We each have a purpose from God, but we can't do that purpose if we're going to let our struggles hold us back. And one of the ways that we get over that with confession and having them be redeemed is it gives us new empathy and love for others. You see, the people I know that are the most um, self-righteous, judgmental, angry towards others are the ones that I suspect are the most hollow among us. Because if they had actually taken the mistakes in their, that are in their past— Because every one of us has those. And they had actually given them to God and been forgiven for them. Then that would have become a new part of their identity. A solid identity built in the forgiveness of God. And that would change how they interact with others. But instead, when I see self-righteous, judgmental people, what I know is going on is they've still got stuff that they're trying to shove down. But if we're willing to not just leave it behind and be hollow, we can actually use that to help us love and care for others even better. And then finally, what it can do when we give our uh, past weaknesses and mistakes to God is it actually gives us victory in life. You see, those struggles aren't something that have to define us for what they are. They can define us for how we overcame them. Think about all the famous generals of history. They're not famous because they were nice people who never had any problems in their life. They're famous because they had a battle and they won it. And we honor and praise them rightly for the battle that they've won. And when we can take our mistakes and weaknesses, give them to God in confession, let him say to us, you are now an approved of child of God. And we can charge forward confidently using that empathy and credibility to make a difference in the lives of others. Then that means that we are victors. That means we've won. 
And instead of a past mistake conquering us and holding us down, it now becomes the thing that we conquered and now can help others conquer as well. You see, the image, as I've wrestled with what Paul is saying for us here in Galatians 1, uh, is how to represent this idea that when we try to sever our struggles without actually confessing them and letting God redeem them, what does that do to us? How does that change who we are compared to how we were supposed to be? And as I wrestled with this, one image came to mind. It was the most theologically accurate image I could find, and it's this one. Chocolate Easter bunnies. Because you know, if you've lived through an Easter, you know what it's like to think that you have a delicious, solid hunk of chocolate bunny that you then bite into and find out that it's hollow on the inside. And that you paid $8 for something that was only a little bit of chocolate. I saw a quote uh, in the New York Times about this phenomenon, and they talk about how Easter is for many Americans their first ever exposure to chocolate, you know, just pure chocolate. And yet for many children, it's also their first taste of disappointment. Because who hasn't had that experience of thinking you were getting just a solid five-pound thing and finding out that you got a mouthful of air instead? We know it with chocolate bunnies. You want a solid one, not a hollow one. And that's what I'm encouraging us to be this morning. As we reflect on this series of what it means to be hollow inside, we don't want to be hollow. We don't want to be a fragile shell filled with nothing but air. And if we try to sever or forget or ignore our past, that's what we end up being. Something that's chocolate on the outside and yet nothing at all on the inside. But if we're willing to take a chance, God knows your past anyway. It's not like he is not in, like he's in the dark or that you're keeping anything a secret from him. He already knows everything you're most ashamed of, every weakness, every mistake. He knows it. But the difference you can take is this, that when we're actually able to confess it, we open ourselves up to his divine miracles. We open ourselves up to the power of God that says, I can make you new. I can take this hollow shell that you've created and I can fill it with a redeemed life. With a history that doesn't negate who you are or disqualify who you are, but makes you richer and deeper and more able to be a force in the world for that purpose I've made for you. That's what confession does. That's how you, each and every one of you, me, can get to a point where they, the people around us will praise God because of us. They won't praise God because we never messed up. They'll praise God because in our screw-ups, we still find our identity and purpose in him. So as you've been listening this morning, my hope is that you've not just been hearing me share some of my own struggles and how I wrestle with them, but there's been that thing niggling in the back of your mind as well. That thing that would normally wait for tonight at bedtime to pop up and arise, but because of what we're talking about today, it's just been in your thoughts for the last 25 minutes. 
And I know that because that's how the Holy Spirit works when we're actually confronted with his word and his truth. And what I'd like to do now is take just a few minutes. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you to just take some time with yourself and God. And I'm going to ask you to give that thing to him. That thing that he already knows, that thing that is going to be no surprise to him, but that thing that you've been holding on to, letting it haunt you, letting it make you lose sleep, letting it keep you silent in the face of people that need your love and care in the world. I want you to take that thing and I'd like you to share it with God right now. It is my privilege and joy to get to say to you this morning that whatever it was, whatever was on your thoughts, whatever that thing is that you have been unable to let go, no matter how shameful, no matter how awful, no matter how much damage it may have done to you and to others, whatever it is, that the same God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead can take that thing, does take it, takes it away from you, and rewrites your identity. Not as a victim, not as a sinner, not as a failure, but as a beloved, approved child of God. And so I now proclaim to you this morning that whatever it is that you have shared with God, your Father, it is forgiven you in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, who loved you and died for you. Amen.